Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Chapter 3 The Earl of Emsworth stood in the doorway of the senior conservative club's vast dining room and beamed with a vague sweetness on the two hundred or so senior conservatives who, with much clattering of knives and forks, were keeping body and soul together by means of the coffee-room luncheon. He might have been posing for a statue of amiability, his pale blue eyes shone with a friendly light through their protecting glasses. The smile of a man at peace with all men curved his weak mouth. His bald head, reflecting the sunlight, seemed almost to wear a halo. Nobody appeared to notice him. He so seldom came to London these days that he was practically a stranger in the club. And in any case, your senior conservative, when at lunch, has little leisure for observing anything not immediately on the table in front of him. To attract attention in the dining room of the Senior Conservative Club between the hours of one and two-thirty, you have to be a mutton chop, not an earl. It is possible that, lacking the initiative to make his way down the long aisle and find a table for himself, he might have stood there indefinitely. But for the restless activity of Adams, the head steward, it was Adams' mission in life to flit to and fro, hauling would-be lunchers to their destinations, as a St. Bernard dog hauls travelers out of alpine snowdrifts. He sighted Lord Emsworth and secured him with a genteel pounce. "'A table, your lordship. This way, your lordship.' Adams remembered him, of course. Adams remembered everybody. Lord Emsworth followed him beamingly and presently came to anchor at a table in the farther end of the room— Adams handed him the bill of fare and stood brooding over him like a providence. "'Don't often see your lordship in the club,' he opened chattily. It was business to know the tastes and dispositions of all the five thousand or so members of the senior conservative club and to suit his demeanor to them. To some he would hand the bill of fare swiftly, silently, almost brusquely, as one who realizes that there are moments in life too serious for talk. Others, he knew, liked conversation, and to those he introduced the subject of food almost as a sub-motive. Lord Emsworth, having examined the bill of fare with a mild curiosity, laid it down and became conversational. No, Adams, I seldom visit London nowadays. London does not attract me. The country, the fields, the woods, the birds... Something across the room seemed to attract his attention, and his voice trailed off. He inspected this for some time with bland interest, then turned to Adams once more. "'What was I saying, Adams?' "'The birds, your lordship.' "'Birds? What birds? What about birds?' "'You were speaking of the attractions of life in the country, your lordship. You included the birds in your remarks.' "'Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes, yes.' "'Oh, yes, to be sure. Do you ever go to the country, Adams?' 
"'Generally to the seashore, your lordship, "'when I take my annual vacation.' Whatever was the attraction across the room once more exercised its spell, his lordship concentrated himself on it to the exclusion of all other mundane matters. Presently he came out of his trance again. What were you saying, Adams? I said that I generally went to the seashore, your lordship. Ah, when? For my annual vacation, your lordship. Your what? My annual vacation, your lordship. "'What about it?' "'Adams never smiled during business hours, "'unless professionally, as it were, "'when a member made a joke. "'But he was storing up in the recesses "'of his highly respectable body "'a large laugh to be shared with his wife "'when he reached home that night. "'Mrs. Adams never wearied "'of hearing of the eccentricities "'of the members of the club. "'It occurred to Adams that he was in luck today.' He was expecting a little party of friends to supper that night, and he was a man who loved an audience. You would never have thought it to look at him when engaged in his professional duties, but Adams had built up a substantial reputation as a humorist in his circle by his imitations of certain members of the club, and it was a matter of regret to him that he got so few opportunities nowadays of studying the absent-minded Lord Emsworth. It was rare luck, his lordship coming in today, evidently in his best form. Adams, who is the gentleman over by the window, the gentleman in the brown suit? That is Mr. Simmons, your lordship. He joined us last year. I never saw a man take such large mouthfuls. Did you ever see a man take such large mouthfuls, Adams? Adams refrained from expressing an opinion, but inwardly, he was thrilling with artistic fervor. Mr. Simmons' eating was one of his best imitations, though Mrs. Adams was inclined to object to it on the score that it was a bad example for the children. To be privileged to witness Lord Emsworth watching and criticizing Mr. Simmons was to collect material for a double-barreled character study that would assuredly make the hit of the evening. "'That man,' went on Lord Emsworth, "'is digging his grave with his teeth. "'Digging his grave with his teeth, Adams. "'Do you take large mouthfuls, Adams?' "'No, your lordship. "'Quite right. "'Very sensible of you, Adams. "'Very sensible of you. "'Very se "'What was I saying, Adams?' "'About my not taking large mouthfuls, your lordship. "'Quite right. "'Quite right. "'Never take large mouthfuls, Adams. "'Never gobble.' "'Have you any children, Adams?' Two, your lordship.' "'I hope you teach them not to gobble. "'They pay for it later in life. "'Americans gobble when young "'and ruin their digestions. "'My American friend, Mr. Peters, "'suffers terribly from indigestion.' "'Adams lowered his voice to a confidential murmur. "'If you will pardon the liberty, your lordship, "'I saw it in the paper... "'About Mr. Peters' indigestion?' "'About Miss Peters, your lordship, and the Honorable Frederick. "'May I be permitted to offer my congratulations?' "'Ah, oh, yes, the engagement. "'Yes, yes, 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 to be sure. "'Yes, very satisfactory in every respect. "'High time he settled down and got a little sense. "'I put it to him straight. "'I cut off his allowance and made him stay at home. "'That made him think, lazy young devil.' Lord Emsworth had his lucid moments, 
and in the one that occurred now it came home to him that he was not talking to himself, as he had imagined, but confiding intimate family secrets to the head steward of his club's dining room. He checked himself abruptly, and with a slight decrease of amiability, fixed his gaze on the bill of fare and ordered cold beef. For an instant, he felt resentful against Adams for luring him on to soliloquize. But the next moment, his whole mind was gripped by the fascinating spectacle of Mr. Simmons dealing with a wedge of Stilton cheese, and Adams was forgotten. The cold beef had the effect of restoring his lordship to complete amiability, and when Adams, in the course of his wanderings, again found himself at the table, he was once more disposed for light conversation. "'So you saw the news of the engagement in the paper, did you, Adams?' "'Yes, your lordship, in the mail. "'It had quite a long piece about it, "'and the Honourable Frederick's photograph "'and the young ladies were in the mirror. "'Mrs. Adams clipped them out and put them in an album, "'knowing that your lordship was a member of ours. "'If I may say so, your lordship, a beautiful young lady.' "'Devilish attractive, Adams, and devilish rich. "'Mr. Peters is a millionaire, Adams. "'So I read in the paper, your lordship.' "'Damn, they all seem to be millionaires in America. "'Wish I knew how they managed it. "'Honestly, I hope. "'Mr. Peters is an honest man, but his digestion is bad. "'He used to bolt his food. "'You don't bolt your food, I hope, Adams. "'No, your lordship, I am most careful. "'The late Mr. Gladstone used to chew each mouthful thirty-three times. "'Deuce good notion if you aren't in a hurry. "'What cheese would you recommend, Adams?' "'The gentlemen are speaking well of the Gorgonzola. "'All right, bring me some. "'You know, Adams, what I admire about Americans is their resource. "'Mr. Peters tells me that as a boy of eleven "'he earned twenty dollars a week selling mint to saloon keepers, "'as they call publicans over there. "'Why they wanted mint, I cannot recollect. "'Mr. Peters explained the reason to me, "'and it seemed highly plausible at the time, "'but I have forgotten it. "'possibly for mint sauce. "'It impressed me, Adams. Twenty dollars is four pounds. "'I never earned four pounds a week "'when I was a boy of eleven. "'In fact, I don't think I ever earned four pounds a week. "'His story impressed me, Adams. "'Every man ought to have an earning capacity. "'I was so struck with what he told me "'that I began to paint. "'Landscapes, your lordship. "'Furniture.' It is unlikely that I shall ever be compelled to paint furniture for a living, but it is a consolation to me to feel that I could do so if called on. There is a fascination about painting furniture, Adams. I have painted the whole of my bedroom at Blandings, and am now engaged on the museum. You would be surprised at the fascination of it. It suddenly came back to me the other day that I had been inwardly longing to mess about with paints and things since I was a boy. They stopped me when I was a boy. I recollect my old father beating me with a walking stick. Tell me, Adams, have I eaten my cheese? Not yet, your lordship. I was about to send the waiter for it. Never mind. Tell him to bring me the bill instead. I remember that I have an appointment. I must not be late. Shall I take the fork, your lordship? The fork? Your lordship has inadvertently put a fork in your coat pocket. 
Lord Emsworth, felt in the pocket indicated, and with the air of an inexpert conjurer whose trick has succeeded contrary to his expectations, produced a silver-plated fork. He regarded it with surprise. Then he looked wonderingly at Adams. "'Adams, I'm getting absent-minded. "'Have you ever noticed any traces of absent-mindedness in me before?' "'Oh, no, your lordship. "'Well, it's deuced peculiar. "'I have no recollection whatsoever of placing that fork in my pocket. "'Adams, I want a taxicab.' "'He glanced round the room, "'as though expecting to locate one by the fireplace. "'The hall porter will whistle one for you, your lordship.' "'So he will, by George, so he will. "'Good day, Adams. "'Good day, your lordship.' "'The Earl of Emsworth ambled benevolently to the door, "'leaving Adams with the feeling that his day had been well spent. "'He gazed almost with reverence after the slow-moving figure. "'What a nut,' said Adams to his immortal soul. "'Wafted through the sunlit streets in his taxicab, the Earl of Emsworth smiled benevolently on London's teeming millions. He was as completely happy as only a fluffy-minded old man with excellent health and a large income can be. Other people worried about all sorts of things, strikes, wars, suffragettes, the diminishing birth rate, the growing materialism of the age, a score of similar subjects. Worrying, indeed, seemed to be the 20th century specialty, Lord Emsworth never worried. Nature had equipped him with a mind so admirably constructed for withstanding the disagreeableness of life that if an unpleasant thought entered it, it passed out again a moment later. Except for a few of life's fundamental facts, such as that his checkbook was in the right-hand top drawer of his desk, that the Honorable Freddy Threepwood was a young idiot who required perpetual restraint, and that when in doubt about anything, he had merely to apply to his secretary, Rupert Baxter. Except for these basic things, he never remembered anything for more than a few minutes. At Eton, in the sixties, they had called him Fathead. His was a life that lacked, perhaps, the sublimer emotions which raise man to the level of the gods. But, undeniably, it was an extremely happy one, he never experienced the thrill of ambition fulfilled, but on the other hand, he never knew the agony of ambition frustrated. His name, when he died, would not live forever in England's annals. He was spared the pain of worrying about this by the fact that he had no desire to live forever in England's annals. He was possibly as nearly contented as a human being could be in this century of alarms and excursions. Indeed, as he bowled along in his cab and reflected that a really charming girl, not in the course of any West End theatre, a girl with plenty of money and excellent breeding, had, in a moment, doubtless of mental aberration, become engaged to be married to the Honourable Freddy, he told himself that life, at last, was absolutely without a crumpled rose-leaf. The cab drew up before a house gay with flowered window-boxes, Lord Emsworth paid the driver and stood on the sidewalk, looking up at this cheerful house, trying to remember why on earth he had told the man to drive there. A few minutes' steady thought gave him the answer to the riddle. This was Mr. Peter's townhouse, and he had come to it by invitation to look at Mr. Peter's collection of scarabs. 
to be sure. He remembered now his collection of scarabs. Or was it Arabs? Lord Emsworth smiled. Scarabs, of course. You couldn't collect Arabs. He wondered idly as he rang the bell what scarabs might be, but he was interested in a fluffy kind of way in all forms of collecting, and he was very pleased to have the opportunity of examining these objects, whatever they were. He rather thought they were a kind of fish. There are men in this world who cannot rest, who are so constituted that they can only take their leisure in the shape of a change of work. To this fairly numerous class belonged Mr. J. Preston Peters, father of Freddy's Aileen. And to this merit or defect it is to be attributed his most maniacal devotion to that rather unattractive species of curio, the Egyptian scarab. Five years before, a nervous breakdown had sent Mr. Peters to a New York specialist. The specialist had grown rich on similar cases, and his advice was always the same. He insisted on Mr. Peters taking up a hobby. "'What sort of a hobby?' inquired Mr. Peters, irritably. His digestion had just begun to trouble him at the time, and his temper now was not of the best. "'Now my hobby,' said the specialist, "'is the collecting of scarabs. "'Why should you not collect scarabs?' "'Because,' said Mr. Peters, "'I shouldn't know one if you brought it to me on a plate. "'What are scarabs?' "'Scarabs,' said the specialist, warming to a subject, "'the Egyptian hieroglyphs.' "'And what,' inquired Mr. Peters, "'are Egyptian hieroglyphs?' "'The specialist began to wonder "'whether it would not have been better "'to advise Mr. Peters to collect postage stamps. "'A scarab,' he said, "'derived from the Latin scarabus, "'is literally a beetle.' "'I will not collect beetles,' said Mr. Peters, "'definitely,' They give me the willies. Scarabs are Egyptian symbols in the form of beetles, the specialist hurried on. The most common form of scarab is in the shape of a ring. Scarabs were used for seals. They were also employed as beads or ornament. Some scarabi bear inscriptions having reference to places, as, for instance, Memphis is mighty forever. Mr. Peter's scorn changed to active interest. "'Have you got one like that?' "'Like what? "'A scarab boosting Memphis. "'It's my hometown. "'I think it possible that some other Memphis was alluded to. "'There isn't any other except the one in Tennessee,' said Mr. Peters. "'The specialist owed the fact that he was a nerve doctor "'instead of a nerve patient to his habit of never arguing with his visitors. "'Perhaps, he said, you would care to glance at my collection. "'It's in the next room.' That was the beginning of Mr. Peter's devotion to scarabs. At first he did his collecting without any love of it, partly because he had to collect something or suffer, but principally because of a remark the specialist made as he was leaving the room. "'How long would it take me to get together that number of the things?' Mr. Peters inquired, when having looked his fill on the dullest assortment of objects he remembered ever to have seen, he was preparing to take his leave." The specialist was proud of his collection. How long to make a collection as large as mine? Years, Mr. Peters. Oh, many, many years. I'll bet you a hundred dollars I'll do it in six months. 
From that moment, Mr. Peters brought to the collecting of scarabs the same furious energy which had given him so many dollars and so much indigestion. He went after scarabs like a dog after rats. He scooped in scarabs from the four corners of the earth, until at the end of a year he found himself possessed of what, purely as regarded quantity, was a record collection. This marked the end of the first phase of, so to speak, the Scarabean side of his life. Collecting had become a habit with him, but he was not yet a real enthusiast. It occurred to him that the time had arrived for a certain amount of pruning and elimination. He called in an expert and bade him go through the collection and weed out what he felicitously termed the dead ones. The expert did his job thoroughly. When he had finished, the collection was reduced to a mere dozen specimens. The rest, he explained, are practically valueless. If you are thinking of making a collection that will have any value in the eyes of archaeologists, I should advise you to throw them away. The remaining twelve are good. How do you mean good? Why is one of these things valuable and another so much punk? They all look alike to me. And then the expert talked to Mr. Peters for nearly two hours about the New Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, Amon, Mutt, Babastus, Dynasties, Cylinders, Bezels, Queen Taya, the Princess Gilakipa, the Lake of Zeraki, Nucratus, and the Book of the Dead. He did it with a relish. He liked to do it. When he had finished, Mr. Peters thanked him and went to the bathroom, where he bathed his temples with eau de cologne. That talk changed J. Preston Peters from a scooper-up of random scarabs to what might be called a genuine scarab fan. It does not matter what a man collects. If nature has given him the collector's mind, he will become a fanatic on the subject of whatever collection he sets out to make. Mr. Peters had collected dollars. He began to collect scarabs with precisely the same enthusiasm. He would have become just as enthusiastic about butterflies or old china if he had turned his thoughts to them. But it chanced that what he had taken up was the collecting of the scarab, and it gripped him more and more as the years went on. Gradually he came to love his scarabs, with that love surpassing the love of women, which only collectors know. He became an expert on those curious relics of a dead civilization— for a time, they ran neck and neck in his thoughts with business. When he retired from business, he was free to make them the master passion of his life. He treasured each individual scarab in his collection, as a miser treasures gold. Collecting, as Mr. Peters did it, resembles the drink habit. It begins as an amusement and ends as an obsession. He was gloating over his treasures when the maid announced... Lord Emsworth. A curious species of mutual toleration, it could hardly be dignified by the title of friendship, had sprung up between these two men, so opposite in practically every respect. Each regarded the other with that feeling of perpetual amazement with which we encounter those whose whole viewpoint and mode of life is foreign to our own. The American's force and nervous energy fascinated Lord Emsworth. As for Mr. Peters, nothing like the Earl had ever happened to him before in a long and varied life. 
Each, in fact, was to the other a perpetual freak show, with no charge for admission. And if anything had been needed to cement the alliance, it would have been supplied by the fact that they were both collectors. They differed in collecting, as they did in everything else. Mr. Peter's collecting, as has been shown, was keen, furious, concentrated. Lord Emsworth had the amiable dotteringness that marked every branch of his life. In the museum at Blanding's Castle, you could find every manner of valuable and valueless curio. There was no central motive. The place was simply an amateur junk shop. Side by side with the Gutenberg Bible, for which rival collectors would have bidden without a limit, you'd come on a bullet from the field of Waterloo, one of a consignment of 10,000 shipped there for the use of tourists by a Birmingham firm. Each was equally attractive to its owner. "'My dear Mr. Peters,' said Lord Emsworth, sunnily, advancing into the room, "'I trust I am not unpunctual. I have been lunching at my club.' "'I'd have asked you to lunch here,' said Mr. Peters, "'but you know how it is with me.' "'I've promised the doctor I'll give those nuts and grasses of his a fair trial, "'and I can do it pretty well when I'm alone with Aileen. "'But to have to sit by and see somebody else eating real food "'would be trying me too high.' "'Lord Emsworth murmured sympathetically. "'The other's digestive tribulations touched a ready chord. "'An excellent trencherman himself, "'he understood what Mr. Peters must suffer. "'Too bad,' he said, Mr. Peters turned the conversation into other channels. "'These are my scarabs,' he said. Lord Emsworth adjusted his glasses, and the mild smile disappeared from his face to be succeeded by a set look. A stage director of a moving picture firm would have recognized the look. Lord Emsworth was registering interest, interest which he perceived from the first instant would have to be completely simulated for instinct told him, as Mr. Peters began to talk, that he was about to be bored as he had seldom been bored in his life. Mr. Peters, in his character of showman, threw himself into his work with even more than his customary energy. His flow of speech never faltered. He spoke of the New Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, Amon, waxed eloquent concerning Mutt, the Hyksos kings, cylinders, bezels, and became at times almost lyrical when touching on Queen Taya, Nucratus, and the Book of the Dead. Time slid by. Take a look at this, Lord Emsworth. As one who, brooding on love or running over business projects in his mind, walks briskly into a lamppost and comes back to the realities of life with a sense of jarring shock, Lord Emsworth started, blinked, and returned to consciousness. Far away, his mind had been seventy miles away, in the pleasant hothouses and shady garden walks of Blanding's Castle. He came back to London to find that his host, with a mingled air of pride and reverence, was extending toward him a small, dingy-looking something. He took it and looked at it. That, apparently, was what he was meant to do. So far, all was well. "'Ah,' he said, that blessed word, covering everything. He repeated it, pleased at his ready resource. "'A Cheops of the Fourth Dynasty,' said Mr. Peters fervently. "'I beg your pardon. "'A Cheops of the Fourth Dynasty.' Lord Emsworth began to feel like a hunted stag. 
he could not go on saying ah indefinitely. Yet what else was there to say to this curious little beastly sort of a beetle kind of thing? Dear me, a Cheops! Of the fourth dynasty! Bless my soul, the fourth dynasty! What do you think of that, eh? Strictly speaking, Lord Emsworth thought nothing of it, and he was wondering how to veil this opinion in diplomatic words, when the providence that looks after all good men saved him by causing a knock at the door to occur. In response to Mr. Peter's irritated cry, a maid entered. "'If you please, sir, Mr. Threepwood wishes to speak with you on the telephone.' Mr. Peters turned to his guest. "'Excuse me for one moment.' "'Certainly,' said Lord Emsworth gratefully. "'Certainly, certainly, certainly, by all means.' The door closed behind Mr. Peters. Lord Emsworth was alone. For some moments he stood where he had been left, a figure with small signs of alertness about it. But Mr. Peters did not return immediately. The booming of his voice came faintly from some distant region. Lord Emsworth strolled to the window and looked out. The sun still shone brightly on the quiet street. Across the road were trees... Lord Emsworth was fond of trees. He looked at these approvingly. Then, round the corner, came a vagrom man, wheeling flowers in a barrow. Flowers! Lord Emsworth's mind shot back to Blandings like a homing pigeon. Flowers! Had he or had he not given head gardener Thorne adequate instructions as to what to do with those hydrangeas? Assuming that he had not... Was Thorn to be depended on to do the right thing by them, by the light of his own intelligence? Lord Emsworth began to brood on head gardener Thorn. He was aware of some curious little object in his hand. He accorded it in a momentary inspection. It had no message for him. It was probably something, but he could not remember what. He put it in his pocket and returned to his meditations. At about the hour when the Earl of Emsworth was driving to keep his appointment with Mr. Peters, a party of two sat at a corner table at Simpson's Restaurant in the Strand. One of the two was a small, pretty, good-natured-looking girl of about twenty. The other, a thick-set young man with a wiry crop of red-brown hair and an expression of mingled devotion and determination. The girl was Aileen Peters. The young man's name was George Emerson, he also was an American, a rising member in a New York law firm. He had a strong, square face, with a dogged and persevering chin. There are all sorts of restaurants in London. From the restaurant which makes you fancy you are in Paris, to the restaurant which makes you wish you were. There are palaces in Piccadilly, quaint lethal chambers in Soho, and strange food factories in Oxford Street and Tottenham Court Road. But... There is only one Simpsons. Simpsons in the Strand is unique. Here, if he wishes, the Briton may for the small sum of half a dollar stupefy himself with food. The god of fatted plenty has the place under his protection. Its keynote is solid comfort. It is a pleasant, soothing, hearty place, a restful temple of food. No strident orchestra forces the diner to bolt beef and ragtime, no long central aisle distracts his attention with its stream of new arrivals. There he sits, alone with his food, while white-robed priests 
wheeling their smoking trucks, move to and fro, ever ready with fresh supplies. All round the room, some at small tables, some at large tables, the worshippers sit. In their eyes, that resolute, concentrated look, which is the peculiar property of the British luncher, ex-President Roosevelt's man eating fish, and the American army worm. Conversation does not flourish at Simpson's. Only two of all those present on this occasion showed any disposition towards chattiness. They were Aileen Peters and her escort. "'The girl you ought to marry,' Aileen was saying, "'is Joan Valentine.' "'The girl I am going to marry,' said George Emerson, "'is Aileen Peters.' "'For answer, Aileen picked up from the floor beside her "'an illustrated paper, "'and having opened it at a page towards the end, "'handed it across the table. "'George Emerson glanced at it disdainfully. "'There were two photographs on the page. "'One was of Aileen,' the other of a heavy, loutish-looking youth who wore that expression of pained glassiness which young England always adopts in the face of a camera. Under one photograph were printed the words Miss Aileen Peters, who is to marry the Honorable Frederick Threepwood in June. Under the other, the Honorable Frederick Threepwood, who is to marry Miss Aileen Peters in June. Above the photographs was the legend Forthcoming International Wedding, son of the Earl of Emsworth, to marry American heiress. In one corner of the picture, a Cupid, draped in the stars and stripes, aimed his bow at the gentleman. In the other, another Cupid, clad in a natty union jack, was drawing a bead on the lady. The sub-editor had done his work well. He had not been ambiguous. What he intended to convey to the reader was that Miss Aileen Peters of America was going to marry the Honorable Frederick Threepwood, son of the Earl of Emsworth, and that was exactly the impression the average reader got. George Emerson, however, was not an average reader. The sub-editor's work did not impress him. "'You mustn't believe everything you see in the papers,' he said. "'What are the stout children in the one-piece bathing suits supposed to be doing?' "'Those are cupids, George, aiming at us with their little bow. A pretty and original idea.' "'Why cupids?' "'Cupid is the god of love. "'What has the god of love got to do with it?' "'Aileen placidly devoured a fried potato. "'You're simply trying to make me angry,' she said, "'and I call it very mean of you. "'You know perfectly well how fatal it is to get angry at meals. "'It was eating, while he was in a bad temper, "'that ruined father's digestion. "'George, that nice fat carver is wheeling his truck this way. "'Flag him, and make him give me some more of that mutton.' George looked round him morosely. "'This,' he said, "'is England, this restaurant, I mean. "'You don't need to go any farther. "'Just take a good look at this place "'and you've seen the whole country "'and can go home again. "'You may judge a country by its meals. "'A people with imagination "'will eat with imagination. "'Look at the French. "'Look at ourselves. "'The Englishman loathes imagination. "'He goes to a place like this and says, "'Don't bother me to think.' Here's half a dollar. Give me food, any sort of food, until I tell you to stop. And that's the principle on which he lives his life. Give me anything and don't bother me. That's his motto. If that was meant to apply to Freddy and me, I think you're very rude. Do you mean that any girl would have done for him so long as it was a girl? George Emerson showed a trace of confusion. 
being honest with himself, he had to admit that he did not exactly know what he did mean, if he meant anything. That he felt rather bitterly was the worst of Aileen. She would never let a fellow's good things go purely as good things. She probed and questioned and spoiled the whole effect. He was quite sure that when he began to speak, he had meant something, but what it was escaped him for the moment. He had been urged to the homily by the fact that at a neighboring table he had caught sight of a stout young Briton with a red face who reminded him of the Honorable Frederick Threepwood. He mentioned this to Aileen. "'Do you see that fellow in the gray suit? "'I think he's been sleeping in it, at the table on your right. "'Look at the stodgy face. See the glassy eye. "'If that man sandbagged your Freddy and tied him up somewhere "'and turned up at the church instead of him, "'can you honestly tell me you would know the difference? "'Come now, wouldn't you simply say, "'Why, Freddy, how natural you look, "'and go through the ceremony without a suspicion?' He isn't a bit like Freddy. My dear girl, there isn't a man in this restaurant under the age of 30 who isn't just like Freddy. All Englishmen look exactly alike, talk exactly alike, and think exactly alike. And you oughtn't to speak of him as Freddy. You don't know him. Yes, I do. And what is more, he expressly asked me to call him Freddy. Oh, dash it, old top. Don't keep on calling me Threepwood. Freddy to pals. Those are his very words. George, you're making this up. Not at all. We met last night at the National Sporting Club. Porky Jones was going 20 rounds with Eddie Flynn. I offered to give three to one on Eddie. Freddy, who was sitting next to me, took me in fivers. And if you want any further proof of your young man's pinheadedness, mark that. A child could have seen that Eddie had him going. Eddie comes from Pittsburgh. God bless it. My own hometown. Did your Eddie win? You don't listen. I told you he was from Pittsburgh. And afterward, Threepwood chummed up with me and told me that to real pals like me, he was Freddy. I was a real pal, as I understood it, because I would have to wait for my money. The fact was, he explained, his old governor had cut off his bally allowance. You're simply trying to poison my mind against him, and I don't think it's very nice of you, George. What do you mean, poison your mind? I'm not poisoning your mind. I'm simply telling you a few things about him. You know perfectly well that you don't love him and that you aren't going to marry him and that you're going to marry me. How do you know I don't love my Freddy? If you can look me straight in the eyes and tell me you do, I'll drop the whole thing and put on a little page's dress and carry your train up the aisle. Now then. And all the while you're talking, you're letting my carver get away, said Aileen. George called to the willing priest, who steered his truck toward them. Aileen directed his dissection of the shoulder of mutton by word and gesture. "'Enjoy yourself,' said Emerson coldly. "'So I do, George, so I do. What excellent meat they have in England!' "'It all comes from America,' said George patriotically. "'And anyway, can't you be a bit more spiritual? I don't want to sit here discussing food products.' If you were in my position, George, you wouldn't want to talk about anything else. It's doing him a world of good, poor dear. But there are times when I'm sorry Father ever started this food reform thing. You don't know what it means for a healthy young girl to try and support life on nuts and grasses. And why should you? broke out Emerson. I'll tell you what it is, Aileen. You are perfectly absurd about your father. 
I don't want to say anything against him to you, naturally, but... Go ahead, George. Why this diffidence? Say what you like. Very well, then, I will. I'll give it to you straight. You know quite well that you have let your father bully you since you were in short frocks. I don't say it's your fault or his fault or anybody's fault. I just state it as a fact. It's temperament, I suppose. You are yielding and he is aggressive, and he has taken advantage of it. We now come to this idiotic Freddy marriage business. Your father has forced you into that. It's all very well to say that you are a free agent and that fathers don't coerce their daughters nowadays. The trouble is that your father does. You let him do what he likes with you. He has got you hypnotized, and you won't break away from this Freddy foolishness because you can't find the nerve. I'm going to help you find the nerve. I'm coming down to Blanding's castle when you go there on Friday. Coming to Blanding's? Freddy invited me last night. I think it was done by way of interest on the money he owed me, but he did it and I accepted. But George, my dear boy, do you never read the etiquette books and the hints in the Sunday papers on how to be the perfect gentleman? Don't you know you can't be a man's guest and take advantage of his hospitality to try and steal his fiancée away from him? Watch me. A dreamy look came into Aileen's eyes. I wonder what it feels like being a countess, she said. You will never know. George looked at her pityingly. My poor girl, he said, have you been lured into this engagement in the belief that pop-eyed Frederick, the idiot child, is going to be an earl some day? You have been stung. Freddy is not the heir. His older brother, Lord Bosham, is as fit as a prize fighter and has three healthy sons. Freddy has about as much chance of getting the title as I have. George, your education has been sadly neglected. Don't you know that the heir to the title always goes on a yachting cruise with his whole family and gets drowned and the children too? It happens in every English novel you read. Listen, Aileen, let us get this thing straight. I have been in love with you since I wore knickerbockers. I proposed to you at your first dance. Very clumsily. But sincerely. Last year when I found that you had gone to England, I came on after you as soon as the firm could spare me. "'and I found you engaged to this Freddy. "'I like the way you stand up for Freddy. "'So many men in your position might say hard things about him. "'Oh, I've nothing against Freddy. "'He is practically an imbecile, and I don't like his face. "'Outside of that, he's all right. "'But you'll be glad later that you did not marry him. "'You're much too real a person. "'What a wife you'll make for a hard-working man. "'What does Freddy work hard at?' I am alluding at the moment not to Freddy, but to myself. I shall come home tired out. Maybe things will have gone wrong downtown. I shall be fagged, disheartened. And then you will come with your cool white hands, and placing them gently on my forehead... Aileen shook her head. It's no good, George. Really, you had better realize it. I am very fond of you, but we are not suited. Why not? You are too overwhelming... "'Too much like a bomb. "'I think you must be one of the supermen one reads about. "'You would want your own way and nothing but your own way. "'Now Freddy will roll through hoops and sham dead, "'and we shall be the happiest pair in the world. "'I am much too placid and mild to make you happy. "'You want somebody who would stand up to you, "'somebody like Joan Valentine.' 
That's the second time you've mentioned this Joan Valentine. Who is she? She's a girl who's at school with me. We were the greatest chums. At least, I worshipped her and would have done anything for her. And I think she liked me. Then we lost touch with one another and didn't meet for years. I met her on the street yesterday, and she is just the same. She's been through the most awful times. Her father was quite rich. He died suddenly while he and Joan were in Paris, and she found out that he hadn't left her a cent. He'd been living right up to his income all the time. His life wasn't even insured. She came to London, and so far as I could make out from the short talk we had, she has done pretty much nearly everything since we last met. She worked in a shop and went on the stage and all sorts of things. Isn't it awful, George? Pretty tough, said Emerson. He was but faintly interested in Miss Valentine. She's so plucky and full of life. She would stand up to you. Thanks. My idea of marriage is not a perpetual scrap. My notion of a wife is something cozy and sympathetic and soothing. That is why I love you. We shall be the happiest. Aileen laughed. Dear old George, now pay the check and get me a taxi. I've endless things to do at home. If Freddy is in town, I suppose he'll be calling to see me. Who is Freddy, do you ask? Freddy is my fiancé, George, my betrothed, my steady, the young man I'm going to marry. Emerson shook his head resigningly. Curious how you cling to that Freddy idea. Never mind. I'll come down to Blanding's on Friday, and we shall see what happens. Bear in mind the broad fact that you and I are going to be married, and that nothing on earth is going to stop us. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.